Hi, and welcome to the 40 and Infertile podcast. I'm your host, Victoria, at 40 and Infertile on Instagram. I'm a fellow IVF patient, and this is where I share with you my fertility journey in my late 30s and 40s, while also providing you information to minimize your fertility struggles later in life. This is the second episode of Challenging Topics, and today's controversial topic is birth control. And one of the reasons I really want to tackle this topic is because it is so controversial. Um, there have recently been a lot of, I'll call it discussion, <laughs> about the evils of birth control. So I really wanted to kind of tackle um, and get into the nitty gritty of all this. So I got some help to set the record straight because I am certainly not qualified to have this discussion on my own. Today's conversation is a thoughtful one and an informative one with Dr. Julia Jaffe about birth control, fertility, and the myths surrounding them. So we talk about birth control and their effects on their body, and Dr. Jaffe offers some insight into the importance of understanding these options, um, and especially with people with certain medical conditions where this may be helpful. Um, so sometimes... Um, birth control can be used to manage health concerns beyond preventing pregnancy. And we have a discussion about that today. But I also want to let you know that Dr. Rahi Victory um, did an Instagram post on this with um, some discussion about the risks and the benefits, and he lays them out really nicely in this post. I'll drop a link in the show notes so you can just click over. Uh, we talk a little bit about this today, but I also wanted to give you another resource that you can take a look at. Hopefully, this episode serves as a valuable resource for anyone who's navigating concerns about birth control, fertility, um, and family planning. Um, but again, this is not medical advice. It is for educational and informational purposes only. So make sure you talk to your uh, healthcare provider about any of your concerns because, as I always say, everyone's situation is unique. So I want to make sure that um, you get uh, your questions answered specifically for your health. Um, but I also want to make sure that no one's experience is dismissed. I've always felt really strongly that this space um, should be a safe space to share information. So I really aim to do this with support and without shame. Because some of the discussions that we have today, like I said, can be controversial. I don't want you to feel um, any shame around this. I want this to be a safe space for people to ask questions. I, again, am certainly not qualified to answer them, but um, hopefully I can give you resources where you can go and talk to your own personal doctor or healthcare provider. Thank you so much, Dr. Jaffe, for joining us today and answering these questions. I know it's really hard to tackle a very difficult topic like this. There are a lot of strong feelings about it, so I appreciate the time that you've taken to educate all of us about all of this, um, and I hope you guys enjoy. I also want to make sure that no one's experience is dismissed. I've always felt really strongly that this is a safe space to share information. So I really hope that I did this um, in this episode without any shame, um, with support. Um, and so I hope that this encourages you to at least um, open up the dialogue between you and your healthcare provider about birth control and your fertility needs or family planning needs. Thank you. 
Just a quick reminder, I am not a physician and the information provided today is for educational and informational purposes only and is not a substitute for professional medical advice. So make sure that you consult with your own fertility doctor before choosing any medical therapies that may affect your fertility. Unfortunately, every person's situation is unique and it is vital that you discuss your own personal situation with your fertility doctor to decide what is the best course of action for you. Hey everyone, we're back and today we have Dr. Julia Jaffe. She's an OBGYN out of New York and she's joining us here today to talk about your menstrual cycle and do some myth busting around birth control. So thank you so much for being here, Dr. Jaffe. Thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, I'm so excited because I think I how I found your account or how, I don't even know how it happened. I think I was just you know, it's one of those things that pop up where they're like, hey, you might like. <laughs> and I think mm-hmm. I ended up over there and I just saw <clears throat> that you had this passion for educating people. And I thought that that was really wonderful. And I know sometimes this platform, the Instagram platform, sometimes is not the best. And sometimes it's really great when people like you pop on and are able to educate us on some things that I think particularly around your menstrual cycle and birth control that really need some experts in the field to kind of, you know, share the important things and the things that are true. Yeah, it's funny that that was the thing that popped out to you. That was really the impetus for starting to be on social media. It's something I'd avoided for a long time. The cringe factor was a lot for me, but I found myself ranting to my friends and loved ones to the point where my partner actually said, can you please find another platform to vent these things to people who can actually, you know, find use in them? (laughs) Um, Because there is so much misinformation. I know a lot of doctors have started to, you know, participate more in those kinds of public discussions. And I do think it's, it's challenging to address complicated, fraught topics in those, you know, short snippet formats. But I think that is you know, a lot of where the conversation is happening. And it's been enlightening for me to see sort of how some of the fake information or misinformation is distilled throughout our culture. It really was enlightening for me to see how strongly some of these myths are are actively being pressed on people and help me understand better where my patients are coming from and, and how really tenacious some of these false ideas are. Yeah. And that's so true. Sometimes when you're, you know, meandering about social media, like I said, you know, you popped up as someone I might like. And, you know, it's probably because of the buried data in your posts, right? That it, like that resonates with the stuff that I post that are that that I follow. And that sure. likely happens with people who are following other accounts. And then, you know, you sift through all this stuff and sometimes it's really hard to know what's true, what's not true, particularly when you don't know where to go for resources. It used to be like back before social media became about, it used to be that you would find it in a textbook (laughs) or you would find it, you know, like somewhere where you're like, okay, this information is likely reputable, but now I've got all these platforms to share information and that makes it harder to kind of sift through what is true and what isn't. And then you have no idea where to go to find out what is true and what isn't. So, you know, having more people like yourself on these platforms to kind of say, hey, pause, these are the reasons why this is untrue, or these are the reasons why this is true, can be so helpful. Yeah, thank you. And absolutely, I mean, to your point, you know, I think there is so much, I think, justifiable really frustration and confusion 
particularly with women in medicine yeah. and, you know, experiences of feeling like the traditional medical establishment is not open to hearing your concerns or has not done enough to address your concerns. And that sort of real sort of stream of truth, I think, can get manipulated yeah. to prey on people's anxiety and frustration with the medical system to offer these sort of quick fix miracle solutions that right. can feel almost like a protest against the establishment and sort of a, a righteous taking of a separate path. But really, a lot of it is just salesmanship mm -hmm. and, and snake oil. Yeah. And so I think it is important to talk as much about truth and science yeah. as we can. No, for sure. I had someone I was talking to, and they were t talking about actually, funny enough, birth control. And they said, you know, their cycles were, you know, kind of messed up. And then they found someone that had these herbal supplements that was supposed to uh, help like uh, get rid of fibroids. And I was like, whoa, <laughs> wait a minute. <laughs> so many. And particularly I find, you know, when talking to patients and again, seeing a lot of it on social media, there's a lot of it is, you know, targeted toward women and women of color yeah. who have good reason yes. to feel that they may not be served by the traditional medical system. And it really is, it's a travesty yeah. that people are, you know, capitalizing on these on these fears instead of offering real scientific solutions. Yeah. So let's kind of get started with how you got into the space of women's health. So how did you decide that being an OBGYN was your calling? Oh, well, let's see. So I actually was not interested in science and medicine as a young person. I should say that my father happens to be a now retired OBGYN. Mm -hmm. So it was something that was very familiar to me. I grew up on labor and delivery, but I think as a young scholar or learner, you know, traditional science, I think because it is taught, honestly, as a lot of rote memorization and sort of conformist thinking almost, I think I was not as interested in it as a, as a young person. And I studied art history and psychology as an undergrad. And I think I was really interested in issues of humanity and how all these, you know, different approaches to science really come together to shape the way we live. And... As I was looking out after graduation, I found actually that my interests were much more, I'm going to pause. Yeah. <laughs> In thinking about the issues that are really important to me, a way I could actually turn that into a career that was meaningful to me, some of the practice of medicine actually really did integrate all those humanities and the sort of truth finding that was really meaningful to me. So I went back, I did a post-bac program, which is when you do the pre-medical courses that allow you to apply to medical school. So I did that at Columbia in New York. And I went to medical school actually thinking I was going to be interested in neurosurgery because, uh -huh. again, I have a real strong interest in the sort of yeah. mind-body connection. And I like the idea of sort of helping people rehabilitate after traumatic injuries. That was what I thought. I knew I like surgery. That's something sort of physical and interactive and just really there's no no gloss and glitter around yeah. it. You know, it's it's sort of like a sport. So you get it done or you don't. Yeah. But I like those things about surgery. But I, you know, in the course of my training, I, you know, issues of feminism and the real sort of intimacy and interpersonal components to the practice of gynecology sort of became more of the forefront for me. And by the end of my medical education, that was where I where I knew I wanted to go. So I did a residency in OBGYN. And then because I really have an interest in surgery, I did an additional two-year fellowship in pelvic surgery. 
at Emory in Atlanta. And now I'm in a practice in New York that's private practice and NYU affiliated with a group of great dynamic women. And it's been really great. Yeah. No, that's great. It's like you kind of tried to run from medicine and it just came back chasing you. <laughs> right. I know. There's a whole other, right? You could get into the psychology yeah. of that for days. Yeah. But, um, but yes, I'm, I'm aware of the, <laughs> the, you know, it's the, funny that narrative in it. It's true. Yeah. It's, it's funny because I, I think I've met some people who kind of did that. It's like, oh, my dad was a physician and I knew that's not what I wanted to do. And it's like, I don't know, sometimes if it's just buried in your DNA somewhere and then it's just like, <laughs> sorry, you're going to do it anyway. (laughs) Right. We definitely turn to what's comfortable. I remember having friends in college. So I went to Wesleyan, which is like a very artsy, Mm -hmm. hippie-dippy school. (laughs) And I had friends who were painters. Uh And I, you know, we're talking about, and to them, you know, they grew up in artistic families and that being a doctor was just not a thing that one really did. And for me at the time, being a painter was just not, I didn't even have a point of entry into how one does that for real, you know? And now, of course, I have some more familiarity with that. But yeah, it's true. Certain things are just, you know, inborn or conditioned into us to (laughs) be natural. Yeah. Well, let's start with the basics. I think the thing that we certainly don't talk enough about, and I think if we kind of go back into our childhoods, we talk a little bit about the menstrual cycle. And for us as women, I think what we learn is, oh my gosh, you can get pregnant if you walk by anybody with sperm. (laughs) And so we got to make sure you understand how not to get pregnant, right? But we don't talk about normal menstrual cycles. We don't talk about abnormal menstrual cycles. We don't talk about what to do if they're normal or abnormal. We don't spend any time on that. We just spend time on how to not get pregnant. (laughs) So our whole lives are spent not getting pregnant. And then when it's time or when, you know, we get to that and some of us are struggling, then we're like, wait, what do we do? Is this normal? Is this not? Like, we just have no idea. So if we could just break down the menstrual cycle for us laymen in like terms that a four-year-old could understand. (laughs) So we kind of understand the basics around how the cycle works and what happens in our bodies. Sure. I mean, to your point, yes, I think sex education is framed as a very negative, scary thing. I think lots of people can speak more articulately about the urgent need for better sex ed in this country and around the world. But as far as the menstrual cycle, you know, and what's normal and what's abnormal, I think an important point to really keep in mind throughout these conversations is that, you know, just like bodies in general, there's a huge range of what is normal. There's a huge diversity among people's bodily functions, if you will, and, and how those present to the world. And when it comes to menstruation and ovulation and bleeding patterns, one of the challenging things is to define what is normal, mm-hmm. right? A phrase we use in, in you know, a sort of common diagnosis that we talk about in gynecology is abnormal uterine bleeding. Mm-hmm. And this can be spotting between periods, heavier periods, irregular bleeding when you're perimenopausal or irregular periods in adolescence. A lot of these things are not necessarily indicative of an underlying harmful condition. And it, but they, in some cases, can be a presentation or tip of an iceberg of something that can lead to something abnormal. And so that's one of the challenges, I think, when there is such a range of abnormal, sort of drawing a line about what needs to be treated and what isn't, I think, causes a lot of anxiety mm-hmm. for a lot of patients that I see. And I think what I tell patients generally is, you know, 
there's a relatively finite list of things that I'm worried about that could be going wrong here. And so I'm going to do an evaluation and I'll take you through some of those things and how we're going to rule them out. Mm -hmm. And if we rule those things out, then until I have something else to be concerned about, I'm really going to think of you as being normal and whatever normal is for you, because I've, you know, eliminated any danger. So then it's a question of accepting that your cycle or pattern may not look like how you thought it looked in a movie or what your grandma told you or whatever your friends are saying or what your friend experienced. But, you know, there's a way that we can assess for things that are dangerous. Mm -hmm. So the... I'll give you the sort of very simplified yes. little stick that I give to patients all the time. Mm -hmm. And for listeners who are really deep in the weeds of this stuff, some of this might seem oversimplified, but to give an overview, right? In a normal menstrual cycle, right, a center in your brain essentially signals to your ovary to start maturing one of the many millions of eggs that you're born with. Mm -hmm. And as it does that, one of these eggs is sort of selected to be the dominant egg and it develops in the ovary and releases increasing amounts of reproductive hormones, significantly estrogen. And as those hormone levels rise, those hormones circulate throughout your body and signal to the uterine lining to thicken. The uterine lining tissue thickens in theory to prepare for potential pregnancy. And so the hormone levels are rising, the uterine lining is thickening, and then at some sort of critical mass, at some point you ovulate, right? That egg is released and there's a small cyst left behind. And if there's no pregnancy there to really pick up the slack of hormone production, those estrogen levels fall fairly precipitously. And so that estrogen support to the uterine lining is no longer there. So that tissue really decomposes, sort of crumbles and sheds. Mm -hmm. And then the process starts over again. Mm -hmm. So so when we talk... Uh -huh. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, 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 go ahead. Well, I don't want to jump too far no, go. ahead, Keep going. but when at people, one of the common misconceptions that I talk to about people all the time is that, you know, they'll be concerned about their periods on birth control. You know, I'm having irregular periods on birth control or I'm not having periods on my birth control. And people are often very surprised to learn that, in fact, you're not having a period on birth control. Mm -hmm. The birth control works by providing a very low dose of estrogen and progesterone. And this is the conventional combined mm -hmm. birth control pills. And they essentially signal to your brain that you have enough of these hormones, you're good. So they don't start an ovulation cycle. So your ovaries are really just sort of hanging out on standby. You're not ovulating. There's no cyclic up and down of these hormones. Instead, the pill just provides a low, steady state of those hormones, which in turn leads to a subtler, lower state thickening of the uterine lining that's steady throughout the day. And most pills are manufactured in, let's say, a four-week pack where the first three weeks have active hormone in them. And the last week is sort of a placeholder or placebo pill. Mm -hmm. And so when you get to the last week of the pack and you're taking those placebo pills, there's a subtler drop in your estrogen levels. And that subtler or that lower level of, endo of estrogen support to the uterine lining is no longer there. So that tissue decomposes mm -hmm. and sheds. Mm -hmm. But it's generally less than is than occurs with the sort of big sine wave of your natural menstrual cycle. Mm -hmm. And so that's why they tend to result in less pain and bleeding mm -hmm. as opposed to people who are not on birth control. But the bleeding that you have on birth control is really artificially induced bleeding through the withdrawal of these hormones as directed by the pill. Mm -hmm. It has very little to do really with your underlying menstrual cycle. Mm -hmm. We've sort of hijacked that system. Mm -hmm. So... 
you're not actually having a menstrual cycle when you're on hormones. Mm-hmm. I understand what you're saying. Basically, be, your own system is sleeping while this external system is doing the work for your internal system. Right. Okay. When it comes to ovulation, yes. that's right. Okay. So that's a normal cycle. That's what we would expect. When is a menstrual cycle abnormal and when should we – well, I guess this is a three-part question. <laughs> it might be a lot, so we could break it down. So when is a menstrual cycle abnormal where we need to see help? From a gynecologist, and then you know, or what are some common menstrual cycle problems? And then another one that comes up, and we kind of talked about this a little bit earlier. You know, a lot of folks, I think, as you said, get frustrated because maybe they get dismissed by their gynecologist or something like that. And so, at what point do we kind of pause or push a little harder and say, you know what, I would really like to explore more because this is really concerning for me or whatever? Yeah, that's a good question. I think a lot of people struggle with that. As far as normal menstrual periods, again, you know, there's sort of textbook definitions, and I can give you one of those to be helpful. So generally, you know, an average menstrual Mm -hmm. cycle is about 28 days, we say 24 to 35 days. When we talk about a menstrual cycle length, we're talking about day one, the first day of bleeding in one cycle, then you finish bleeding, you go on to the next, and then to day one of the next menstrual period. So it's not after a period ends, but it's from start to start, month to month. Mm-hmm. And you know the average cycle is about 28 days, as I said. And if you are having infrequent or irregular periods, so if you have variation in your menstrual cycle length, that is more than a week. So what I mean by that is we really consider give or take a week to be normal. Mm -hmm. If your cycle is 30 days and then 35 days and then 29 days, that really is unlikely to be a cause for concern. Now, that doesn't mean if you're concerned about it, you should not go ask your doctor. People come to me all the time and say, oh, I'm so sorry. This is a silly question. It's never a silly question. If you're concerned, it's never a bad idea to ask if it's going on. But you have to be open to the possibility that there's nothing going on. So variation within a week is considered normal. One common concern I get is about PCOS Mm -hmm. or infrequent ovulation. And with that, we're talking about irregular ovulation that is is slowed, essentially. So if you're having less than nine periods in a year, or if you're going three consecutive months without a period, that's the point at which I generally recommend sort of an initial hormone evaluation to look for certain factors in your reproductive hormones, as well as thyroid or prolactin, other factors that might be throwing a wrench into the system. Mm And on the other side, you know, irregular bleeding or more frequent bleeding is a common cause of concern. My general approach is if you're having irregular bleeding that's unexplained, it's never a mistake to come in. In young people, the most common causes that I think about in terms of that are pregnancy, sexually transmitted infection, or vaginitis or cervicitis, which is just inflammation of the vagina or cervix. Mm -hmm. You can have polyps or fibroids, which are little benign growths in the lining of the uterus that are very vascular. So they can be sort of easily irritated and bleed easily. Mm -hmm. In a young, healthy person, I'm not particularly concerned that those are medically harmful. But if you have something there that is causing annoying bleeding, that may be an opportunity for something uh, for us to treat, right? Mm -hmm. If you have a fibroid in your uterine cavity and you're perfectly healthy, but it just won't stop bleeding, Mm -hmm. We can go in and remove that through a minimally invasive outpatient procedure Mm -hmm. that can help with symptoms potentially. Mm -hmm. So 
it's also true that you can have just irregular shedding of the uterine lining tissue. You know, there's a lot of other forces during sex or activity. You can have some shearing of that tissue. And just due to the sort of internal hormonal mechanisms, it can shed somewhat irregularly. And it's very vascular. And so it can bleed for, you know, a period of minutes to hours to days. And it doesn't necessarily mean that anything larger is wrong. But again, we don't know until we do an evaluation to rule out that list of things that could potentially be harmful. Mm-hmm. And then so if you find that you're asking this question and your gynecologist is not receptive, like, oh, don't worry about it. It's fine. My thought is always get a second opinion. <laughs> you can always do that. But what's your thought? Sure. What's your thought on that? Sure. I listen, I think I think – you know, people say this all the time. I'm never going to be offended if you want to get a second opinion. Mm-hmm. I think getting sort of a new set of eyes, sometimes if I have a difficult or sort of ambiguous, you know, case, I will ask my colleagues just mm-hmm. to even come and look at something or, you know, run it by them. Mm-hmm. I think that's perfectly appropriate, you know, sort of adjacent to that or to, you know, I think if you feel your doctor is really not listening to you, I think that can be really detrimental to the relationship in and of itself. So I think that's a good reason to maybe see someone else. As a physician, I will say, I think it's also really important to balance. I think there's two really important parts to the sort of collaborative decision-making process, which is, you know, patients thinking about it and communicating clearly and knowing and being believed about their symptoms, their individual experience, right? As a patient, there is no greater authority on the planet, in the universe, than you about what you have been feeling and experiencing. And then what I can bring to the conversation is sort of a broader evidence-based understanding of disease processes and natural processes to help sort of interpret what your symptoms are, mm-hmm. right? So if, you're, if you come to me and say, you know, I have pelvic pain, I am certain that I have ovarian cancer, mm-hmm. right? This is and this is not to mock or shame no, anyone totally. who has a yeah, concern yeah, yeah. or has a suspected diagnosis. But, you know, I can say I 100% appreciate that you're having pain. I want to hear more about your pain and different triggers and what helps it and when and all the different things about it. But I want to also use the opportunity to talk through and educate you about some different possibilities and how we can think through these. Yeah. I saw, I think it was actually on social media something a while ago, someone saying, I think it was a med student saying, you know, these are things you can do to advocate for yourself. Yes. Ask your doctor for a differential diagnosis, mm-hmm. right? Which is ask your doctor what they're thinking, what their list of possible reasons mm-hmm. are and why they think it is more or less likely to be each of those reasons. And that's really not all that complicated. And I, frankly, love doing that with patients. Mm-hmm. It's, it's fun for me to talk to people about this. And sometimes it can be frustrating when I'm saying, you know, this is really a variation on normal, or I'm not, I, I don't actually think that antibiotics will help the situation, mm-hmm. or I don't necessarily think the treatment that you came in seeking is really best for you. And here's why. Mm-hmm. I think sometimes that can be frustrating mm-hmm. for patients, but I think it really has to be sort of a two-way street mm-hmm. on, you know, what you're subjectively experiencing and what we sort of objectively know or can reasonably predict about, you know, what you're experiencing. Yeah. And I think you bring up a good point in that it should be a collaborative effort. I think it can be really difficult sometimes. And I don't, I don't want to generalize, but I guess I'm about to generalize. (laughs) Whenever you say, I don't want to, or no offense, or whatever you're about to do that thing that you just said you're not going to do. But (laughs) like, I feel like some of the older school doctors are probably more like, 
this is what I say. This is what you're going to do. Don't question me. And I think the younger generation has kind of moved towards more of a collaborative effort, or at least the current iteration of physicians, I think, are more open to it. And I think sometimes as a patient walking in, you're you're maybe used to having that fight. And so you come in guns blazing, like, I'm going to fight for my thing. But I think you bring up a good point in that both sides should be receptive to a conversation. And in that conversation, if you're able to work together as a team, I think that's way more beneficial for both sides than it is when you know, just one side feels heard or seen or whatever, you know what I mean? And I think to your point, that's when moving on to a new physician where you can create a better partnership. Because if you're just fighting the whole time, then it's no fun for either side. Like both sides are just like miserable. (laughs) Right. Absolutely. I mean, I think the same goes for really any kind of, you know, conversation. It really should be sort of a yes and yeah. Let's get to a solution together and we're both on the same page. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think we could have a, you know, nine hour conversation about greater forces, yes. like the, you know, greater information and distrust of experts yes. and the pluses and minuses of that, yes. as well as the way the American healthcare system really sets up patients and doctors yes. to be in a sort of transactional adversarial business relationship yeah. Where you know you sort of want to get what you pay for, and yeah. there's a whole bunch of other factors yes. in there. But I think also, you know, there's a lot more women in medicine, and I think a lot of people feel more comfortable with gynecologists. Yeah. And there's a lot more, which is not to say anything negative yes. about my male gynecology colleagues. Yes. I think that's also a concern I hear from patients that I appreciate uh-huh. but don't feel yeah. myself. Yeah, and yeah, I think there's been a lot of more, a lot more discussion about, you know, the sort of flawed two steps forward one step back trajectory of this canon of science and how we really should think critically about it Mm -hmm. and that you know statistics are not people and when an individual comes to me to talk about something I can use what I know about statistics but really it's about helping you as an individual patient you know and if whether it's something serious or something even you know imaginary, it's important that we're on the same page. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, for sure. And then kind of moving toward birth control, somehow, (laughs) somewhere along the way, (laughs) I don't know, but birth control has become this big bad monster. I don't, I don't know how it's come to be that way. And I don't know if it's because there's like a movement to more of a holistic lifestyle, minimizing toxins, minimizing chemicals to your body, all that stuff. Which essentially everything is a chemical. <laughs> like any the food you eat is a chemical. And I think I don't I don't know how I I'm assuming that's what happened. I don't know when or how, but somewhere along the way, birth control became this horrible, horrible thing. And so I, I kinda wanna talk about that and break it down a little bit. So what are your thoughts yeah. on that? Have you noticed that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean your listeners can't hear me, but you can see me sort of like <laughs> nodding along like a puppy here as you say that. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really, and this is the thing I talk to patients about all the time. I think, you know, I know this is not a a sociology podcast, but I think it's really important to talk about the cultural context and, and what that, and how we think about hormones in order to have a reasonable conversation about birth control. You know, I talk to people every day, literally multiple times a day who come to me and say some variation of either because of birth control or because of their own biology. You know, I'm feeling hormonal. Yeah. I've just been feeling really hormonal. And I asked them, what, what do you mean by mm-hmm. that? Right? Because hormones are a vital part of our biology. And it, it actually is unclear to me. And the vast majority of the time, 
I would say well above 90% of the time. It, it has something to do with a sense of lack of control and emotionality that a patient feels they should have, or sometimes weight or other factors, but often it has to do with emotions and a lack of control over one's own body, thoughts, feelings, mm-hmm. behaviors. Mm-hmm. And you know, our hormones are part of our endocrine system, mm-hmm. right? This is a collection of organs diffusely placed throughout our body that act via molecular signals, mm-hmm. right? These microscopic messengers that act on nearby tissues, they act on faraway tissues, they act on really all of our other systems to regulate our vital processes, right? Mm-hmm. Of wakefulness and alertness, right? Digestion and metabolism, the way we convert food to energy, you know, sex and reproduction, you know, and lactation, right? The way we convert energy to food, mm-hmm. all these really fundamental processes. And it really, they are all vital to our functioning, you know, and pe- when we talk about hormones, it somehow has become, I think, because they are these invisible messengers, they take on this form of almost like spirits, Mm -hmm. like jinns Mm -hmm. that sort of control us. And having more of them is inviting more of these substances to take over and regulate our bodies, right? And I think it is really an area of medicine that sort of lends itself to sort of an Eastern philosophy medicine, or at least it's sort of easily mapped over that, where it's really a question of of balance and sort of almost like counterposing forces, Mm -hmm where like the drug is also the poison, Mm -hmm. right? Like if you are hypothyroid, you know, you might be sluggish and constipated Mm -hmm. and, you know, but if you take too much thyroid, you can go into what we call thyroid storm, Mm -hmm. which is like an acutely, it's really poison, Mm -hmm. you know, it can kill you. And so it really is important to to talk about these things in terms of balance. There are things that our body naturally makes. There are things that we can sort of modify and nudge in the right direction. Mm -hmm. And it's not that sort of more of them increases our you know, giving up control to these these chemicals. Mm-hmm. And I think it's also important, you know, when we talk about who's hormonal, you know, we talk about teenagers mm-hmm. and we talk about women. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. Those are those are who's hormonal. People yes. who really can't control their impulses. We talk about teenagers teenagers being unable to control their emotions or in boys generally Impulsive their inability and, to yeah. not act sexually aggressive. Right. And when it's women, and this is adult women throughout our lifespan, you know, I, my hormones are making me somehow delusional or unregulated or unruly. Yeah. And I don't know for sure, but I don't think a lot of men are going to their doctors every few months concerned that their hormones are taking over their brains. Mm-hmm. And again, this is not to mock anyone or, you know, I talk to patients all the time. These are really reasonable concerns in context of the way we talk about this stuff, mm-hmm. but it's just so deeply ingrained in these sort of mythical ideas about control of our bodies. Mm -hmm. And, you know, to your point about the fears about birth control, and these are naturally produced things, there's been a lot of, I've seen a lot of sort of garbage accounts talking about how estrogen causes cancer. And just like, again, any other hormone, just like your thyroid hormones, you know, we need estrogen, or estrogen does a lot of work to promote promote bone health, right? Mm -hmm. It obviously plays a very large role in reproduction, ovulation. Mm -hmm. But if it's sort of dominant relative to other hormones, you know, just like I said, it promotes growth of the uterine lining. It also can promote growth of cancer in that tissue, mm-hmm. right? So it's really about a balance. And again, we're sort of seeing what, what works for an individual patient, mm-hmm. which, you know, also leads to another problem, I think, where people 
you know, often come to me, and I'm sure you hear this too, people say, oh, my doctor just wants to put me on birth control. They just sort of dismiss the problem on birth control. Mm-hmm. And the reality is a lot of the conditions that people have in gynecology, right? I hear we talk a lot about endometriosis, PCOS, certainly fertility and infertility. You know, these are in, in a large way hormonal problems, right? These are problems that are driven by the activity of your hormones. So the treatment for them is often a hormonal solution. And this is not as disconnected as I think people sometimes think of it, right? If you have diabetes or, you know, again, hypothyroidism or other multiple other hormones, you know, the treatment is to take a hormone mm-hmm. and it, it doesn't have the same sort of boogeyman scary features that birth control has, mm-hmm. you know? And one other thing I'll just add to that, just to sort of illustrate how, how sort of strange it is, how it's, it's sort of, seen as scary when it comes to women's reproductive hormones in particular. You know, I talk to a lot of people who are concerned about things like hormonal acne Mm -hmm. and are taking spironolactone, which is a testosterone blocker, which is a hormonal medication in the most obvious way. Mm -hmm. And yet people are on these medications and say, oh, I just don't really like the idea of birth control. I think it's really gonna make me hormonal, Mm -hmm. you know? And it's just the, the sort of thread of logic there breaks down. And I think it has a lot to do with the way that we talk about women and hormones and control of our own bodies, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. Sorry, I think I lost the thread of your (laughs) question. That's okay. (laughs) That's okay. That happens. (laughs) It's an important discussion. I mean, you know, I don't, like I said, it's something I spend a lot of time thinking about. Yeah. (laughs) Well, like, I don't, because I mean, I, I understand. And, you know, I've been trying to reduce my exposure to because there is a real problem with toxin exposure and stuff like that. I mean, we are exposed to a lot of chemicals and things that can be harmful that are linked to cancers and things like that. And I don't know when or where that kind of has spread over into things like birth control. But I mean, to your point, people don't worry about being on insulin for a long period of time, which is a hormone people don't really talk about being on thyroid. I love they kind of do. I, I'm hearing more chatter about, you know, long-term thyroid therapy and, and some people are, you know, have concerns about being on thyroid hormone. They're trying to get off their thyroid or something like that, or even like antidepressants or like, you know, different neurotransmitters, right. That change, you know, brain chemistry and things like that. But I don't know where it kind of trickled over into this space, but I think it's important to talk about. And I think it's important to talk about some of the benefits of birth control. And as you said, it can be used as a treatment and there are different forms of birth control out there. So you mentioned the traditional estrogen progesterone mix, but there's also things like the IUD, which has some hormones and then some that don't. And then, you know, progesterone only kind of pills. Can you speak to some of these different contraceptive options and absolutely like when when you would use them and when it would be appropriate sure well there's a range of different options of birth control and ultimately you know there's certain you know additional specific benefits or risks with each of them or potentially drawbacks but really when i talk to patients about this i say they're all really safe and effective if you have a certain medical condition that make, means you shouldn't take a specific one, and I'll get into that in a minute, then, you know, we take that into consideration. But ultimately, it's really sort of dealer's choice. It's whatever you're comfortable with. It's a big market. We're trying to meet your needs here. And, you know, there's almost always a way to do it. 
so, you know, we started talking about the birth control pill, the much maligned birth control pill, which is, again, there's, it's just a combination daily dose of estrogen and progesterone. There's a ton of different variations on the birth control pill. Some of them are, manu- most of them are manufactured in sort of, again, the 21 days of active pill and a week of the placebo pill. Some have a four-day placebo. Some have fancy variations where they're graded sort of differently each week, and they're sort of subtly decreasing the dose as you go through the month. Some of them have even more elaborate sort of like down than up dose variations. And the upshot is they're, in broad strokes, they're all more or less the same. From a medical standpoint, if you were to take a different brand of birth control every month, I have no qualms about that from a safety perspective. Mm-hmm. They all really work to do the same thing. Like I said, they prevent ovulation and stabilize those hormone levels. Now, some of them have, so all of the estrogen that's contained in the birth control pills is the same molecule. It's ethanol estradiol. And the different variations range from 10 to 50 micrograms in the doses that are prescribed today. Now, these, importantly, are all, all, quote, low-dose birth control. When we talk about low-dose birth control, we're really talking about comparisons to previous generations of birth control, like your grandma's birth control, Mm -hmm. that had higher doses of these hormones, and those were associated with more side effects. But any birth control that is prescribed by American gynecologists today is a low-dose birth control. But that subtle variation between 20 and 50 micrograms can be used to sort of nudge sort of the, the outcomes or the way that someone might respond in a certain way. The So the estrogen is combined with a progestin, which is a synthetic progesterone molecule. And there's different types, different sort of tweaks on this molecule, which means some of them act more potently per weight, like they act more forcefully on the uterine lining tissue. Some of them have a little bit more of what we call an androgenic property, so they can sort of mimic testosterone a little bit. For context, I should add to that, that I'm just going to ex- do a little brief explainer about estrogen and about birth control and testosterone levels. So when estrogen circulate, when the birth control circulates throughout your body, one of the sort of byproducts of how it works is that changes the way your testosterone moves by your body. It sort of increases the amount of testosterone that is sort of sequestered or trapped by this other molecule that prevents it from being active. So the birth control pills generally decrease your active levels of testosterone which is why they can be helpful for things like hormonal acne, right? Because testosterone promotes the growth of acne and facial hair. And I should add, this is also why people have concerns about libido on birth control, about sex drive, because it does somewhat decrease their testosterone levels. I would add to that that libido is a very complicated interpersonal, psychological, and physical process. Mm-hmm. And I would say the, birth con- the testosterone change as a result of birth control is far less likely to make any major consequences as far as libido than other life processes. So I can get more into that later if you have questions. But sorry, I'm going on a little bit of a tangent. That's okay. But keep going. The the birth control decreases your circulating testosterone levels. The progesterone component, some of them have a little bit of an add back property. So they mitigate that decrease in testosterone. So that's the different other sort of flexible building block in the birth control. So, again, they're all in broad strokes generally the same. I sometimes say it's sort of like paper towels. You can get them in smaller sheets or bigger sheets or with flowers or without flowers. It's just a big market, and so there's a lot of variation, but it's sort of like a glut of choices 
that can be useful if we're trying to tailor to a certain set of needs, but also can be sort of overwhelming and distracting in terms of making these decisions. Hey guys, I hope you're enjoying the episode so far. We're just going to take a quick break, so don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. And now back to our episode. But if someone, say, is particularly interested in also treating hormonal acne, you know, I might recommend, is it okay if I say brand names? Yeah, 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 right? yeah. Like Yaz or Yaz or Yasmin or something, in, you know, that has no testosterone-like properties. Or if someone has more issues with irregular bleeding on the birth control, I may suggest increasing the dose of the birth control to sort of more firmly regulate like the on days versus the off days. So there's a sort of greater greater delta between your on days or off days or use a pill that has a more potent progesterone that in a manner of speaking sort of stabilizes that layer of the uterine lining tissue to decrease bleeding. So there's a huge range. There's dozens of formulas And the upshot is basically anyone who is a candidate for any of these can take any of them. Mm -hmm. People have a lot of concern about the, the like they want the lowest dose of estrogen or a slightly higher dose of estrogen. The reality is in the data, we really don't see any meaningful differences in outcomes between using like a 20 microgram versus a 30 microgram pill. Now, in some people who have certain risk factors, we may want to reduce like minimize that estrogen exposure because it stands to reason that if estrogen is is associated with blood clots or migraine complications, then we want to minimize that. But to be perfectly honest, there really is not data to show that those, a lot of those subtle differences actually make a measurable difference. Mm-hmm. I also sometimes use the analogy of like, you know, we know that sleep is good. We know that getting about seven, eight hours of sleep is good two minutes of sleep, more or less, is unlikely. Like, it sounds like more is better, but at that level, it's unlikely to make a meaningful difference. Yeah, I see. So it sort of becomes a little bit splitting hairs. Mm-hmm. But again, a lot of these things are very subjective, right? And they're very individual. So my general approach with patients is, I don't know that this is really going to chemically make a big difference, but I am more than happy to try different types and, and you know, make sort of informed guesses mm-hmm. about what might work and see how it goes. Mm-hmm. And they're all reversible. You know, you can stop them at any time. Mm-hmm. So it sometimes is a little bit of a trial and error process. Mm-hmm. And then to go into some other variations. So estrogen, again, is a hormone that our body naturally makes. Mm-hmm. It does have some of the other ways it affects our organ systems. It can sort of increase your propensity for blood clots. Mm-hmm vascular complications in some people. So if you have additional risk factors for that, we generally avoid using any estrogen. So that includes people who have, you know, a history of blood clots, mm-hmm. right? They have DVT or PE or stroke or hypertension or are immediately postpartum or, you know, in, I don't know, have other, or have an arrhythmia mm-hmm. or, or, you know, risk factors mm-hmm. for blood clots. Mm-hmm. If someone has a known personal history of an estrogen-sensitive breast cancer, obviously we're not going to put estrogen into that person. Mm -hmm. So for people who are not candidates for estrogen use, we use, there is a progesterone-only formula Mm -hmm. of the pill. Mm -hmm. So it's really very similar. You take it the same time every day. It works very similarly. The data shows a really very similar efficacy, but because the way it's released, the, the kinetics of it, 
it it needs to be taken a little bit closer together. It's important that you take it really the same time every day. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, conventional, like combined birth control, really you should take it within about four or five hours. And that's, that's a pretty comfortable window. Mm-hmm. With the progesterone-only pill, I apologize, I don't have the number off the top of my mm-hmm. head, but you really want to take it closer to the same time. Mm-hmm. But it works very similarly. It is a little bit more associated with some irregular spotting or irregular mm-hmm. bleeding because it has some less consistent let's say, effect on the uterine lining tissue, but it's very safe and effective. And to go into some of the other methods, so there's the combined birth control pill, which is one of the more common ones, the the mini pill or the progesterone-only pill. Mm-hmm. And then other self-administered forms are there's contraceptive patches, mm-hmm. which basically are very similar to the combined pill, mm-hmm. except you put it on your skin weekly instead of taking a daily pill. And it works basically like an extended release version of, of oral birth control. So you just replace the patch each week mm-hmm. and stays on in the gym, in the shower, and, you know, really works very much the same way. Mm-hmm. To get a little technical, the hormones are a little bit different in the patch because when you put something through your skin, it doesn't go through your liver. So some people who have concerns about taking combined birth control because of liver cysts or other things that are also on the list of reasons that we don't like to use hormonal birth control, mm-hmm. the patch can be helpful to sort of bypass that issue. Mm-hmm. And then there's the vaginal rings, which are little rubbery rings that you sort of tuck in the vagina and leave them there for three weeks, let's say, if you're going to use it that way, mm-hmm. and then remove it for a week. And that's just like the pill. So the pill, the patch, and the ring are really the same idea. It's just daily, weekly, or monthly and delivered, you know, through your digestive system, through your skin, or through the vaginal skin mm-hmm. that they get distributed. Mm-hmm. You can edit this if you want to. But you know, <laughs> no, no, keep one going. important other thing to add about those is that, you know, as I said, the, the bleeding that you get on birth control pills is really artificially induced bleeding. It's medically unnecessary. There is really no reason that you can't do what we call continuous use, which is, let's say if you're taking birth control pills, and there's three weeks of active pill and a week of placebo, you take the three weeks of the active pill, and then when you get to the placebo pills, throw them out, go straight to the next pack, and have no inactive days. And you're just taking the same low-dose, steady state of hormones every day, no periods, no variations. Mm -hmm. And you can do the same thing with the patch or with the ring, just instead of having a week off, Mm -hmm. just don't. Mm -hmm. And that can be really helpful for people who don't like having menstrual periods or who still have heavy painful periods while using birth control. Mm -hmm. And also for people who are concerned about things like mood changes or Mm -hmm. premenstrual symptoms, right? Because even with the the pill or the patch or the ring, there is a shift in hormones that occurs during that week. Mm -hmm. So if you're concerned that those may be triggering other events, we can really eliminate those variations altogether, Mm -hmm. right? So if you're having pain, you know, anxiety or irritability in the week before your period and you think it might be related to changes in hormones, I can really eliminate that altogether from a chemical standpoint. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that can help a lot. And if it doesn't, then it really says we have to look at some other possible reasons of why you're having these symptoms because we've eliminated that as a variable, Mm -hmm. And so that's really a very effective treatment for people who do have like PMS or PMDD. Yeah. So this is a stupid question, but I'm going to ask it because I know I'm not the only one who's thinking right. about this. So without the drop in the estrogen, what happens to the lining? I mean, it doesn't get thicker and thicker and thicker and it thicker. It just stays. Oh, okay. It just stays, but it, it doesn't get thicker and thicker. So it's not so in a natural cycle, right? It's sort of thickening and shedding and thickening and shedding. 
And it's worth pointing out that's why in people who have irregular, you know, infrequent periods or, you know, with PCOS, one of the potential risks of that over years, not in a generally young, healthy person, but over time, if you have increasing growth of that tissue, sort of unchecked growth that doesn't have a chance to shed, if it continues growing and growing, it can, there's a higher rate that it grows abnormally and develops into cancer. So if you're not having periods frequently, that's a really important reason, or if you're not having regular periods, that's an important reason that we want to, you know, potentially intervene as a preventative measure. But it's not the same. If you're not having periods naturally, means you could have this sort of thickening of tissue and not shedding. But if you're not having periods while you're on birth control, that's really a different animal altogether. And the birth control, really all of these methods for hormonal birth control decrease significantly the risk of uterine cancer. Mm -hmm. Okay. Because it, it doesn't allow that tissue to grow unchecked. Because that estrogen is combined, I should have started with this, the estrogen is combined with progesterone that really antagonizes that that dangerous form of growth, mm-hmm. So, if that makes sense. So the progesterone really stimulates that like basal layer of tissue, and the estrogen stimulates a sort of more superficial layer of tissue, and the progesterone decreases that more superficial growth and stabilizes the base layer. So the progesterone is really protective against cancer. That's why we don't give estrogen alone to really almost anybody. We all, If someone has a uterus, whether it's for birth control, whether it's for menopausal symptoms, if you have a uterus, we really don't give estrogen alone because it can increase that risk of cancer. And we balance that with the progesterone that is very reliably preventative. So in, say, someone like PCOS, they don't have that balance? They only have, like, they're more estrogen-driven? Is that? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, that's, it is more estrogen driven. And that's, you know, the same with certain medications. And also, you know, conversations about body size and BMI and gynecology are very fraught. So I always like to sort of tread carefully yeah. around this. But it, and I, I never prescribe weight loss for patients, but it is statistically true that body fat can increase your risk of those types of cancers as well because body fat is hormonally active right? It increases your, your levels of estrogen and testosterone. This is sort of very simplified. And, you know, people of all shapes and sizes can develop PCOS and uterine cancer. But having more body fat increases your estrogen production, roughly, statistically. And, you know, again, people with really, really low or people with less body fat, you know, may roughly be less likely to have, or maybe more likely to have less estrogen, which can be a risk factor for osteoporosis, right? Mm-hmm. Because again, it's a question of balance. You need estrogen for bone health. And again, fertility and, and ovulation, you need estrogen. Having more body fat sort of nudges the other way where you can have increased estrogen and it increases your risk of uterine cancer. So in people with PCOS, again, when I'm talking to young people who have, you know, for whatever reason, barriers to birth control use, I don't insist upon this as a preventative measure, but I do make sure they understand that well, you know, at 25, it's unlikely you're going to develop uterine cancer. Using these hormonal methods to protect the uterus can really serve you later on mm-hmm. when that risk accumulates. Mm-hmm. And w- when does that risk accumulate? Like like into your 40s? Is that when you start to – or like 30s? Well, it's really with age. Okay. It's age. I mean, you know, for all cancers, age is the biggest risk factor essentially. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's a good question. I don't have an exact line at which time I would say. But if someone is coming to me and is 35 or older mm-hmm. – 
and has had longstanding PCOS that's completely untreated, mm-hmm. I would, and again, individually, yeah. I don't want to make overly dramatic totally. rules, but I doing an endometrial biopsy to, to assess for any undetected cancer would be part of my management mm-hmm. before talking about, you know, adding something for prevention. Yeah. And I don't, I don't know how many people know that. So I think that's good because I think that comes up, like you said, where they say, you know, someone just says, oh, well, they put me on birth control to fix this issue. But I think that's that's the missing link sometimes is just that education as to why. Because in your brain, this is all happening at warp speed, right? Like in your physician's brain, this right. is happening in milliseconds, right? And we're here and we just see a flash of you're like, okay, I know this. So I know this. So we're going to do this and we're going to do this. Okay, here's what we're going to do, right? So in your brain, because that's just like how quick you guys fire, right? And us, we're like, what? Why? You know? And so I think, I think knowing this is very helpful for people so that they don't feel like, oh, I just got a pill thrown at me to quote unquote fix yeah, my problems. Think, right. To your point, I think that's very true. And I think you know, and I've seen a lot of the, you know, doctors of all kinds and also the fertility people like, you know, we we have complicated diagnostic and therapeutic plans. Yes. I can't always take of everybody course. to med school. Yeah. And some of these things are so routine yeah. that I think it can feel like, okay, I've done what I need to do. I've, yes. I've created a treatment plan for this person. Yeah. But taking that extra few minutes to explain that I think really makes a world yeah. of difference. And so when I talk to people on PCOS, you know, sort of talk about what that is, the irregular ovulation, mm-hmm. you know, statistically, you're at higher risk for having other hormonal things like hypothyroidism, diabetes, infertility, again, all hormonal concerns. And I'll say, you know, if you're not trying to get pregnant right now, then I'm not really so concerned whether you're ovulating regularly, you know, unscheduled bleeding is a pain in the neck, yeah. right? And potentially anxiety about an unplanned pregnancy is a pain in the mm-hmm. neck. So we can treat that. I want to make sure that you don't have diabetes or hypothyroidism. So I want to test for those things Mm -hmm. to rule out those very serious medical risks. And I want to talk about prevention of reproductive cancer, you know, and, you know, potentially talking about often just sort of knowing in the back of your mind what our game plan is for fertility later Mm -hmm. on, you know, how we can address, you know, triggering ovulation or, you know, fertility and that it's not the same as age related infertility. Mm you know, just sort of laying out some of those things so that you, so that when you hear them next time, they're not new. Yeah. yeah no, so totally. talk about sort of just so that when you're wondering at home, this is how we can talk about it. Yeah. And it really takes five minutes, yeah. you know? No, that's wonderful. I'm like so glad that you do that. Cause like I said, I think, you know, and it's not, you know, I don't think it's malicious in any way. It's just like how quickly, you know, some physicians' brains work. It's like, boom, 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 got it. Da, da, da. And then, you know, I think because, you know, the patient isn't getting that few minutes of education, it can make for, it can make them feel like, oh, I'm just getting this thing and I don't really know why. So it's kind of like, and I hear this too, it's a Band-Aid, right? It's a Band-Aid for this thing or or the misconception that the birth control caused the infertility and we'll kind of get to that point in just a second. But yes. we can we can start the myth busting now. So you know, I think our the this particular group of listeners is, you know, struggling with infertility. And a lot of times the hard thing about infertility is kind of, you know, like some of the stuff you brought up earlier is that we feel like there's no control. Like we can't control anything to like make the infertility go away a lot of times. Like it just is either part of our age or, you know, some conditions we have or it's we are just stuck with these issues that we can't seem to find a reason for. So we're 
struggling to just search and find a reason for it. And, you know, one thing that comes up, as I mentioned, is that some people really think that their birth control played a role in their infertility. And you hear this a lot online. So I'm not sure how this started, but let's start with busting myth number one, birth control causes infertility. Yeah. I mean, huge myth, hard no. It's really that simple. I think, again, to your point, you know, when things are uncertain and out of our control, it's very easy to spend time grasping in the dark for what you can control about it. And the reality is, you know, human reproduction is really inefficient. It's very unpredictable. There's very little we can do to stop labor once it's happening. We're very bad at that. Yeah. We're, we're not all that great when it comes. I mean, we've done, made incredible advances yeah. as far as infertility treatment. But you know, when you go to your, I'm, I see people all the time and I'll, I'll answer your question. No, 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 it's all good. But I see all the time where, you know, I saw my, I saw my fertility doctor and, you know, we did everything, but they only got two eggs. So like, I'm going to go to someone else. Mm-hmm. And as I know, my colleagues in REI are saying all the time, you know, these things are unpredictable. Yeah. If you got two eggs, it's very unlikely that it's, I mean, it's possible, yeah. but it's very unlikely that it's because your REI did something mm-hmm. wrong. It's just, that's the nature of the game. Yeah. And so it's very tempting and this is where I think a lot of the sort of like naturopath wellness culture stuff comes in. It's very tempting to find the secret sauce mm-hmm. that is, you know, really going to fix everything and to blame the medical establishment that has not served you. But I can say definitively, there is no evidence at all to suggest that birth control decreases fertility. It's not biologically plausible, mm-hmm. which means that, you know, when we observe something there isn't a logical reason that, that A should lead to B. Mm-hmm. And it's simply not seen in the literature. Mm-hmm. Again, the birth control, you know, oral birth control prevents you from ovulating. It doesn't kill your eggs. Mm-hmm. It doesn't do anything really to your existing egg quality. Other methods like the Nexplanon work very similarly. Mm-hmm. The IUDs just sit there inside the uterus mm-hmm. and have no impact on really your systemic body chemistry. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I, I have some ideas about where this came from, just sort of the, you know, history of, of manipulation of women in, in our, mm-hmm. you know, in our medical culture. Mm-hmm. But that particular fear really has no basis in science. Mm-hmm. And I used to think, and I, I guess, yeah, well, obviously incorrectly, but we can state this, you know, firmly <laughs> on your end. I, I I don't have the expertise to speak to this, but back before when I was taking birth control, I used to think, oh, well, that means all my eggs are going to get saved for later. <laughs> but they don't. They still disappear. Right. Well, as I'm sure you know, as someone who's been, you know, going through a fertility journey of sorts, right, that's not how it works. Yeah. It's not a question of having the eggs. It's a question of, you know, they sort of become – and the, the terminology around this is is silly too, right, the low-quality eggs mm-hmm. and the grading of the eggs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, right, they, they age, yeah. you know, and it's the, the REI docs, you know – are very good about making people aware that, you know, depending on how you phrase it, one in eight or one in 10, mm-hmm. you know, couples struggle with infertility. But the reality is, you know, after age 50, 100% of people have infertility yeah. at some point. It's just the limitations of our biology, you know, human biology yeah. and aging is part of it. Mm-hmm. Okay, true or false. This is another one that I've heard. And it comes up a lot. <laughs> Birth control causes early menopause. False. I luckily don't hear that one as much. I cannot also for the life of me 
tell you where it comes from. I mean, with all of these things, right, I can imagine how someone might think that if it's dulling your hormonal responses, but it's a break on the system. And once you release that break, your system really does what it does. Similarly, I'm sure you have a question there about, you know, the sort of like buffer period after you stop birth control when you can't or should not get pregnant. Totally bogus. I will say in some people, we do see that there is a delay of a first menstrual period for a couple of months. I I am not aware of any explanation for this Mm -hmm. or any literature to explain Mm -hmm. this. I don't know how much of it is sort of a reporter effect, sort of because it's all sort of like self-reported data. Mm But I can tell you that once you stop the birth control, it leaves your system in about a day Mm -hmm. and your own bodily processes resume. So if you have a, you know, typical, quote unquote, you know, 28 day menstrual cycle, Mm -hmm. you could get pregnant two weeks later. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting, too, that this is such a common concern, because at the same time, right, we know people know that if you miss a birth control pill, right, if you miss two birth control pills in a row, We really consider you to be unprotected, right? Mm-hmm. Because this hormones leave your system yeah. that quickly. Yeah. So there is this very pervasive myth that simultaneously you can't miss a pill. And at the same time, the pill lasts for three months after you stop it. That's a really good point. I didn't so ever think about figure that. on that one. But <laughs> yeah, I actually, I didn't think about so, that. Yeah. Because <laughs> I did, that is true. Because before, if I did miss one, I would start bleeding like within those two days. And I, yeah. Right. Some people have that sort of withdrawal effect. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Well, yes, that does answer. Because I've heard things like you should wait a year because the hormones are so strong right. in your system or I've whatever. Heard, I've heard people say, and listen, even doctors, you know, I've heard doctors say you should wait a month or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure, as you know, with the REI stuff, there's a certain like some people, and it's, not really science-based, but do like an assessment of the endometrium before doing an implantation. So there's some loose sort of pseudo logic in that, Mm -hmm. but the biology really is not like the science is really not consistent with that. So if you are on birth control and you don't want to be pregnant, keep taking the birth control until you are ready to be pregnant. Okay. Got it. And you kind of touched on this earlier. Does birth control increase the risk of cancer? I think the short answer is no. I will say there is some very marginal increase in risk over long-term use in older people with breast cancer. What we know about breast cancer is that some of them, a lot of them are sensitive to hormones. So really the way we think about this is if you have a small breast tumor, these hormones can increase growth of it. So it would be more detectable. Mm -hmm but they are unlikely to contribute to de novo breast cancer. Importantly, the use of birth control is associated with a dramatic reduction in risk of uterine and ovarian cancer. Mm -hmm. Because again, that uterine lining growth is, is decreased, like we said. And also, as a general principle, when things are growing and changing, there's a slightly increased risk that something grows and changes abnormally, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Like you have just I'm thinking about the marathons, like you have a million runners and one of them can go the wrong direction, you know? So with ovulation, that is a generative process that is, is very dynamic. So there's always a chance that something grows a little wonky and that's how you develop ovarian cancer. And the use of of birth control to suppress ovulation decreases that activity, decreasing that risk with a dramatic reduction in ovarian cancer. Okay. All right. How about 
does birth control affect people with mood disorders or people with depression? Okay, so this is a very big and tricky question. Yeah. The short answer, again, is no. Mm-hmm. What I, The way I counsel patients generally is that mood is very complicated. Mm-hmm. There is a lot that is misunderstood and incompletely understood about mood and the chemical contributors to mood. Mm-hmm. You know, my patients often come to me who are on SSRIs or, you know, mm-hmm. and I will, which is useful in the sense that I can say, listen, even with the SSRIs, right, that's a trial and error process. Mm-hmm. They work very differently. It's very subjective whether you feel better on a medication or not mm-hmm. when it comes to treating how you feel. Mm-hmm. So it's very tricky to tease out whether feelings are being driven by chemicals or by sort of personal, interpersonal, mm-hmm. behavioral, environmental factors. We know that there is a lot of sort of mythology around birth control causing mental health issues, mm-hmm. right? As we said, hormones make you crazy. Mm-hmm. And we know that placebo effects are very powerful. Mm-hmm. So we know that birth control pills are likely to cause placebo effects mm-hmm. of that kind. There really is not any actual chemical evidence to associate hormones of birth control with predictable or measurable mood effects. Mm-hmm. So the way I counsel patients on this is there's really no evidence to support it. I cannot say, oh, you know, this birth control is associated with depression, so you should use this one, because really none of them should cause these effects. We don't see that in large groups of people. Mm-hmm. Now, if you as an individual take this medication and for whatever reason you are in distress while taking it, then I don't want you to take mm-hmm. it. Whether it's a placebo effect or whether it's a chemical effect, I may never entirely be able to mm-hmm. know. But if it's not working for you, then I want to find something else mm-hmm. that that does. Mm-hmm. But prospectively, I do not counsel people that this is likely to have an impact on your mood because it's, it's not. I actually did a little Instagram post about this because mm-hmm. the New York Times wrote an article saying how birth control is associated with mood effects. Mm-hmm. And they cited as their source a research paper or a collection of research papers, I think, that basically said these are placebo effects. Mm-hmm. These are universally found to be placebo effects. When we give people medications and we don't call them birth control, mm-hmm. People don't have these effects. Mm. When we tell people that we're giving them birth control and they're not birth control, mm-hmm. they have these mood effects. Mm. Hormone effects, hormone levels don't correlate with psychiatric evaluations. Different brands of birth control don't seem to have any impact. So it's very likely that, again, a lot of these things have to do with cultural ideas and expectations around hormones and around menstruation, mm-hmm. for that matter. Mm-hmm. You know, I talk to people all the time who have who report to me saying they feel more irritable or anxious the week before their placebo pills Mm -hmm. while they're on birth control. Mm -hmm. And they're astounded and often happy, really, when I tell them, you know, while you're on the pill, day one and day 15 are the same. Mm -hmm. Like your body's hormones are not, quote, Mm premenstrual while you're on birth control. It simply is not an explainer because there's no X variable to your Y variable, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. So... If you're experiencing, let's say, mood symptoms while on birth control, it's really worth talking to your doctor and and really considering, you know, what may be at play there. Mm-hmm. Because I think, again, I can't rule out that birth control does interact with mood in some ways, right? People experience PMS symptoms, and there's a lot also that we don't fully understand about menopause and how that impacts mood and sleep and all these things. But I do know that there is a huge sort of cultural boogeyman around menstruation. Mm-hmm. So, and there's a lot of reasons with an individual that can contribute to anxiety, depression, and irritability. So I think if you're coming to me with a, with a mood symptom, 
I think blame or scapegoating birth control is bad, not because I'm like, want everyone on birth control, mm-hmm. but because it really puts you at peril of ignoring other factors that are very likely to be playing a much bigger role. Mm-hmm. So would you say the same would be the case with, say, weight gain? Because I think weight gain is another one that pops up. Yeah, weight gain. Well, weight gain we can objectively measure, right? I mean, that's just simply not not seen. Now, this is an interesting one, too, where you could, right, with the hormones that are used in ovarian stimulation protocols, right, or the higher doses, like your grandma's birth control that I referred to earlier, right, we do, we, you know, if you have hyperstimulation, for example, right, you can have water retention and you know, waking from that. But again, it really comes down to the doses and what we empirically see, like what we observe to happen in people. And there really is not a pattern. Some people have come to me and said that they feel that they were lost weight on birth control or gained weight on birth control. And again, different, if you could make an argument, right, because we do see these changes with higher doses, you could make an argument that it's possible that you are sensitive to these hormones mm-hmm. in whatever way that they're acting this way in your body. Mm-hmm. You know, if you come to me and you're like, I just started birth control and I gained 20 pounds and then I stopped it and I lost 20 pounds, I can, you know, I can, it's, it's plausible yeah. that that is acting that way in your body, right? Mm-hmm. And so we can find an alternative that, that feels better for you. Mm-hmm. But again, prospectively talking to someone about what we know about large groups of people, we don't see it behaving that way. Okay. And are there any other common myths that you hear in your practice that we didn't talk about today that you think would be good to bust? <laughs> Oh, wow. I mean, the major ones, I will say, is the the mood, the weight, the fertility, and the it takes forever to leave your system. Mm-hmm. I think you really covered the main ones. Oh, infections, right? Oh, okay. People are concerned about birth control contributing to infections. And this is sort of another interesting one because it can be a little bit ambiguous, right? Like the environment, I know this is not, I mean, whatever, if this is up you know, your vagina, the environment in the vagina is exposed to a lot of different factors, Mm -hmm. right? Temperature, sweat, Mm -hmm. friction, moisture, and it responds to the hormonal environment. So you could make an argument that if you're on birth control, and that's really decreasing your overall estrogen levels, and you feel a change in like vaginal texture or discharge, playing with that, if we've exhausted, if we've, I would try, if someone comes to me with that issue on birth control, I will explore different options. But if they are unsuccessful, that's something that I will consider to be playing a role. And I say, you know, sometimes changing birth control, it might, because that's, a, again, a very subjective thing, mm-hmm. like the way one feels mm-hmm. the texture of their vagina mm-hmm. internally to them. Mm-hmm. So that's something that also comes up. But again, birth control has not been shown to really be associated or causal of vaginitis or of sexually transmitted infections. Mm-hmm. And I will add to that just because this comes up, I think even on like medical boards and stuff that, you know, it's important we talk about scientific things that, you know, correlation is not causation, Mm -hmm. right? And people who are on birth control are more likely to be sexually active, Mm -hmm. right? So you are more likely to have things like sexually transmitted infections Mm -hmm. and and vaginitis, which are also associated with those things, Mm -hmm. but they are not really caused by birth control. And that is sort of a definitive thing that's important to understand. Okay. No, that's great. Um, okay, a couple questions from that were submitted. The first one is, if birth control stops your period, is it safe long-term when not trying to conceive? Yes. Okay. Full stop. <laughs> that, that was easy. And you were saying because 
the as far as you know depending on what type of birth control you pick but if it's like not an unopposed estrogen kind of space right like as long as there is like either if it's right. so none of them are unopposed estrogen okay. but yeah okay yeah but again though the benefits that we see you know the reduction in cancer rates we really see with long-term use those are those are benefits okay. as well as you know not having an unplanned pregnancy is a benefit and if you do have an abnormal menstrual cycle is there a way to make it normal again The short answer I would say is yes. I think that question, you know, carries a lot of what ifs, if then <laughs> yeah. sort of subcategories. Uh-huh. But yeah, I think for anyone having concerns about a menstrual cycle, I really think talking to a trusted gynecologist or other qualified professional is is so much more often a a release and a help than people think it is. I think people often avoid talking about these things maybe because they're afraid they're going to be dismissed because they have, you know, shame and, and anxiety around talking around these really personal things and people sort of sit quietly in the dark being anxious about it. And a lot of the stuff is really, you know, not all that scary when it comes down to it. Mm-hmm. So my advice to whoever has that question is really to whatever your particular concern about your mental cycle is to talk it over with a trusted professional. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, if you're not being heard by your current one, then time to find a new one (laughs) or someone who will listen and at least have that conversation with you. So, okay. So if people want to connect with you, if they want to schedule an appointment with you, if they have questions for you, what's the best way to reach you? Yeah. Well, I am on Instagram, as you know, (laughs) as Millennial GYN. And I practice in New York City in Chelsea at a wonderful place called Gramercy Gynecology. And we're in Chelsea on 7th Avenue, right by FIT. And we do virtual visits. So if you're not here, we can still see you if you have questions. Obviously, anything requiring a physical exam, you know, has some limitations. Yeah. But yeah, if you have questions about any topics, you can always reach out to me on, on Instagram. I'm always looking for things that people want to hear about. And that's really it. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being here today and sharing all this knowledge and expertise with us. I think, you know, like you said, birth control and hormones have been such a mystery for some of us. And it feels like, I mean, you know, not for you, but for, I think for a lot of people, it seems like this big, huge mystery and they can't quite figure it out. Or, you know, maybe over time, somehow it, it's been expressed to them that, you know, these hormones that you take can be, you know, destructive or whatever in some way. So hopefully today's discussion about how they can be beneficial and how they work in our body can help some people feel less anxious about needing them or taking them if it's something that they need. Again, you know, like you said, my goal isn't for everybody to be on birth control. That's not the goal. The goal is for people who want it or need it can feel more at ease about taking it or at least understand it a little bit better and how they work. So Thank you for being here and sharing all of that stuff. Yep. Thank you so much for having me. To your point, really, the goal is just for everybody to be able to make informed decisions about their own bodies and their own health care. So I appreciate what you're doing and I enjoy talking. Yes. So thank you. Very yes. Much. So I'm, I'm looking forward to more stuff on your account. You've got a lot of great educational pieces on there. So I'm just going to we'll just keep funneling more stuff. <laughs> Like, oh, okay, we talk about this, we talk awesome. about this, we'll just keep talking about it. So thank you for being here. Thank you for being on the show. And we'll talk soon. I want to thank you for tuning in today. 
I hope you found today's episode helpful. As always, please share with anyone who may find value in our conversations. And if the mood strikes you, please feel free to donate to the podcast or leave a five-star review so we can get more listeners to hear these stories and resources. I will have a link in the show notes along with the books that we discussed on this episode. They'll be linked to my Amazon shop. Your purchase with that link helps me offset the costs of running the podcast. So I'd be so grateful if you opted to buy any of the books we discussed on the show through that link. Thank you to everyone who is part of the 40 and infertile community. I am so grateful for all of you and I hope to continue bringing you more content that helps you in your quest to parenthood. If you want to have a question or topic covered in future episodes, please feel free to reach out to me on Instagram at 40 and infertile.